Hey folks, Melissa here. Here's a recording of my latest cafe note. SCOTUS takes on the administrative state. As always, please write to us with your thoughts and questions at letters at cafe.com. Dear listeners, the air is crisp and the leaves are turning. It's fall, which means it's time for another rollicking term at one first street. Yes, that's right. Summer's over and luxury boondoggles and private jet travel are things of the past, we hope, as the Supreme Court gets back to business. And what is that business? Well, this term feels slightly different from the two previous terms, which included hot-button cases on abortion, gun rights, and affirmative action. This term, the cases are technical and wonky, not the kind of stuff that's going to be discussed ad nauseum on cable news or in the press. But that doesn't mean that this term is any less consequential than the two that preceded it. To the contrary, the court is poised to decide whether modern government as we know it is constitutional. This term includes a trio of cases that have the potential to radically reshape the administrative state. So what exactly is the administrative state? Well, if you've ever gotten a passport or filed your taxes, then you've interacted with the administrative state— a term that refers to administrative agencies. The Constitution provides Congress with a broad range of powers to legislate. But Congress is a huge and unwieldy body. It doesn't necessarily have the agility or the expertise to actually administer and enforce the terms of the legislation it enacts. That's where administrative agencies come in. Congress passes a statute, like the Clean Air Act, and in the statute, it delegates some portion of its authority to an administrative agency, like the Environmental Protection Agency, that is staffed with bureaucrats who have the expertise and experience to administer and enforce the terms of the statute. In the Clean Air Act, Congress delegated authority to the EPA to set standards for the enforcement of the act, like air quality standards and guidelines for controlling emissions. Without this delegation of regulatory authority to the EPA, it would be left to Congress to determine the appropriate levels of particulate matter for air quality. Imagine Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene setting emissions standards or air quality standards. Yeah, exactly. Here's another example of the administrative state at work. Passports. Congress has the authority to prescribe standards for admitting people to the country, including granting citizens passports. But the authority to prescribe standards for and issue passports is delegated to an agency, here the State Department. Under the auspices of the State Department, passport agencies are authorized to issue and renew U.S. passports. Without this administrative oversight, every person seeking a passport would be obliged to petition their representative or senator for one. If the prospect of petitioning Congress for a passport sounds even less efficient than making an appointment at the post office to renew your passport— Well, then you get it. Administrative agencies are basically the engines that make modern government work. And in making modern government run, agencies do a range of things. Although agencies are technically housed in the executive branch, they perform functions that are often considered the province of the other branches of government. For example, agencies in the manner of legislatures promulgate rules and regulations pertaining to the administration of statutes. That is, they perform legislative functions. Likewise, agencies may also adjudicate various administrative actions as courts would. That is, they perform adjudicative functions. This hybrid character and penchant for regulation, coupled with the fact that the Constitution makes no explicit provision for administrative agencies, 
all have made the administrative state a huge target for conservative, pro-business interests. For years, the conservative legal movement has taken aim at the administrative state, painting it as the embodiment of big government, staffed by unelected and unaccountable bureaucrats. And while it is true that administrative agencies like health and human services are part of the quote-unquote welfare state, it is likely that at least part of the conservative antipathy for administrative agencies is wrapped up in the fact that agencies are responsible for promulgating regulations that ensure a clean environment, a stable economy, food and drug safety, and healthy work conditions, all at the expense of corporations who are obliged to comply with these regulations. For whatever reason, conservatives have had the administrative state in their crosshairs for decades. And this term, the Supreme Court could give the conservative legal movement a win that would hobble, and perhaps even unravel, key aspects of the administrative state. This term, the court will hear three cases that have important consequences for the administrative state. Let's dig into them. The first case, SEC versus Jarkesi, is a challenge out of the Fifth Circuit, the hyper-conservative intermediate appellate court that hears appeals from trial courts in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. More on the Fifth Circuit in a minute. The facts of Jarkesi are somewhat complicated, but I'll sketch them briefly. George Jarkesi established two small hedge funds that managed $24 million in assets. In 2011, the Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC, initiated an investigation into the hedge funds. But instead of filing a civil action in federal court or referring the matter to prosecutors, the SEC opted to use internal administrative proceedings to evaluate its claims against Jarkesi and his hedge funds. As part of the agency's enforcement action, an administrative law judge, an ALJ, conducted an evidentiary hearing. In 2020, seven years after initiating the enforcement action, the SEC concluded that based on existing evidence from the ALJ's proceedings, Jarkesi had violated securities laws. The commission imposed a stiff fine and barred Jarkesi from any future investment-related activities. Jarkesi appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which reversed the commission's determination and concluded that the administrative adjudication to which Jarkesi had been subject violated various constitutional guarantees, including the Seventh Amendment's right to a civil jury trial. Now, this all sounds really technical and very boring, and not terribly consequential, but stay with me. The SEC performs an important role in the economy, enforcing regulations that make financial markets more stable. As importantly, enforcement actions like the one at issue in Jarkesi are intended to deter corporations, hedge funds, and other institutional investors from taking advantage of individual investors like you and me. Enforcing securities laws and deterring misconduct would be much harder if the SEC were prevented from conducting internal administrative adjudications, like the one that Mr. Jarkesi claims is unconstitutional. The fact of the matter is that the SEC cannot bring every enforcement action in federal court, as Jarkesi argues that it should. Not only are such actions incredibly time and resource consumptive, but they tax the capacity of already overburdened federal courts. Instead, the SEC often reserves such actions for major fraud cases and uses administrative adjudication for smaller actions, like the one involving Jarkesi and his hedge funds. Perhaps you see where I'm going with this. If Jarkesi prevails at the Supreme Court, the SEC will not be able to use administrative adjudication for smaller enforcement actions. It will have to rely on overburdened federal courts for all enforcement actions. 
Because federal courts are already seriously crowded, this means that the agency either will watch as its civil enforcement actions languish in federal court or will bring fewer actions enforcing the securities laws, which may be the point of this challenge. With less SEC enforcement, the landscape will be especially friendly to corporate interests and less friendly to individual investors. The second case before the court this term is another one from the Fifth Circuit. This one concerns the funding mechanism for the Consumer Finance Protection Board, CFPB. Championed by Elizabeth Warren, the CFPB was created in the wake of the Great Recession of 2008 to be a watchdog for everyday consumers and to hold financial institutions accountable for predatory practices. Part of the reason why the CFPB has been so successful in its mission is that it is independent. Like the Federal Reserve Board, which also plays a crucial role in regulating the economy, it is not dependent on Congress for its budget. Instead of being funded directly through a congressional appropriation, the CFPB is funded through external assessments from Federal Reserve Banks. Not surprisingly, financial institutions have been lukewarm on the CFPB and its efforts on behalf of consumers. They've worked overtime to hobble and undermine the CFPB, launching challenge after challenge. In 2020, the Supreme Court decided one challenge to the CFPB's structure— Opponents argued that having a single director, removable only for cause, violated separation of powers principles. The court agreed, holding the director's structure unconstitutional. But meaningfully, the court concluded that the offending director provision was severable from the other parts of the statute that created the CFPB. Congress would have to amend the director structure, but the CFPB as an institution would survive. Nevertheless, the CFPB's critics persisted filing yet another challenge to the embattled agency. This time, an industry group representing payday lenders argues that the CFPB's external funding structure violates separation of powers principles and the Appropriations Clause, which, it argues, requires Congress to directly appropriate funds to the agency. This novel argument found a receptive audience at the Fifth Circuit, which agreed that the appropriation structure was constitutionally faulty because Congress did not directly appropriate funds to the CFPB, but rather allowed the agency to be funded through external assessments from Federal Reserve Banks. Now, if you're thinking that this external appropriation structure sounds awfully familiar, you're right. The CFPB is not the only agency subject to external appropriations. Medicare and Social Security are not funded by a single congressional appropriation, but rather through external payroll taxes. Similarly, the Federal Reserve is externally funded. Basically, if the court agrees with the Fifth Circuit that external funding structures violate the Constitution, the ruling would call into question the funding structures of a wide range of agencies. It will also, according to some economists, destabilize financial markets, perhaps even prompting a second Great Depression all to bring down the CFPB and make the economy safe for payday lenders. Good times. As an aside, you may have noticed that these two cases are both appeals from the Fifth Circuit. In fact, they're not the only Fifth Circuit cases that the court will hear this term. Also on the docket is a major gun rights case in which the Fifth Circuit held that a federal law that disarms individuals who are subject to domestic violence restraining orders violates the Second Amendment. The Fifth Circuit's rationale was that, under the Supreme Court's 2022 decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, gun safety laws are only constitutional if they are consistent with the historic tradition of firearm regulation in the United States. 
canvassing the historical landscape, the Fifth Circuit concluded that there was no historical analog for a law that disarmed individuals subject to domestic violence restraining orders. I should also note that in a separate concurrence, Fifth Circuit Judge James Ho opined that women often seek restraining orders as a means of exacting revenge in divorce proceedings. Yes, that's right. To be clear, the Fifth Circuit was not entirely wrong in finding no historic analog for federal law that disarms individuals subject to domestic violence restraining orders. There are no historic laws disarming individuals subject to domestic violence restraining orders. But that is likely because it was not until the 1980s that the United States began prosecuting domestic violence as a crime and issuing restraining orders to protect women from their domestic attackers. Instead, from the founding until the 1980s, husbands, as the head of households, enjoyed the prerogative of disciplining errant wives and children so long as their efforts caused no lasting physical harm. I mention all of this to make clear that the Fifth Circuit is an incredibly conservative appellate court, one that frequently pushes the envelope on constitutional interpretation. With that in mind, it's no surprise that three of the most closely watched cases of this term are appeals of Fifth Circuit decisions. The fact that the Fifth Circuit is providing so much of the court's docket this term is telling, and tellingly consequential. When the Supreme Court decides these cases, it will either ratify the Fifth Circuit's decisions below or it will resist the urge to be far-right conservative legends and reject the lower court's reasoning in favor of a more moderate disposition. If the court chooses the latter, I guarantee that media outlets will herald it as a victory and praise the court for its moderation. But that would be a mistake. Such an outcome only looks moderate because the alternative, the Fifth Circuit's rationale, is so extreme in its conservatism. Even when the court pulls back from the Fifth Circuit, it's still rooting its decision in solidly conservative territory. On this account, the presence of so many Fifth Circuit cases on the docket tells us a lot about the court and the law right now. It means that the law is moving quickly to the right, and it means that the Fifth Circuit itself gives the court some cover for its conservatism. If the court stops short of endorsing the Fifth Circuit's logic, we will praise it for its moderation, overlooking how it is nudging our jurisprudence to the right. Now, the last case I want to mention is a perfect example of the court pushing things in a more conservative direction, particularly where the administrative state is concerned. In 1984, the court decided Chevron versus Natural Resources Defense Council which articulated the legal test for determining whether to grant deference to an agency's interpretation of a statute that it administers. The test, known as the Chevron Doctrine, maintains that courts reviewing an agency's interpretation of a statute must first determine whether Congress has spoken directly to the precise issue in question, and second, whether the agency's interpretation is based on a permissible construction of the statute. As you might imagine, the Chevron Doctrine is very deferential to agencies. And in 1984, when the Reagan-era EPA sought judicial deference for its pro-business interpretation of a provision of the Clean Air Act, conservatives cheered the Chevron decision. More recently, however, Chevron has become something of a bête noire for conservatives who argue that the decision puts too much regulatory authority in the hands of administrative agencies. For years, they've been trying to claw back Chevron and the prospect of agency regulation. And this term, they have a case before the court that is poised to not only claw back Chevron, 
but to overrule it entirely. The case is called Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. It's a challenge brought by commercial fishermen who object to a provision of the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act that requires fishing vessels to carry federal monitors on board to enforce the Commerce Department's regulations pertaining to overfishing. Specifically, the issue is whether the Commerce Department interpreted the act properly when it required fisheries to pay the costs of the monitoring themselves. The petitioners, a family-owned herring fishing outfit, argue that the Commerce Department's interpretation of the statute is incorrect. It is asked the court to say as much, and in so doing, to overrule Chevron, ending judicial deference to agencies and hobbling the prospect of regulation. If the court sides with the petitioners, the impact would be profound. As the Chevron court concluded almost 40 years ago, and as subsequent courts have acknowledged, Agency deference is important in interpreting ambiguous statutes because the agencies have the expertise and practical experience that federal judges lack. Allowing the agency's deference to interpret ambiguous statutes and promulgate regulations in line with those interpretations allows for the government to get things done by those who have the relevant know-how and experience. And the impact would extend beyond herring fishing. It's no secret that regulated industries have been dying to get rid of Chevron and its deference to agency regulations. Oil and gas, financial services, you name it. Big business has been dying to get out from under the thumb of agency regulations that make doing business more costly. And this term, they may get their wish. Some members of the court's conservative supermajority have in past cases evinced a deep-seated antipathy for the administrative state. Justice Gorsuch, for example, has been very clear about his misgivings, characterizing the administrative state as the province of unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. Fun fact, Gorsuch's mother, Anne Gorsuch Burford, was one such unelected, unaccountable bureaucrat. She served as Ronald Reagan's EPA administrator from 1981 to 1983. In that role, she cut the EPA's budget by more than 20%, reduced EPA staffing, relaxed clean air standards, and reduced the number of actions that the EPA filed against polluters. Her tenure ended abruptly in 1983 when she was cited for contempt of Congress for failing to proffer requested documents related to the administration of a Superfund site. The Reagan White House defended her actions, claiming that she was subject to executive privilege. When it was later reported that she had spoken about withholding more than $6 million in federal funds to clean up the Superfund site near Los Angeles in order to avoid helping Democrat Jerry Brown's Senate campaign, the White House abandoned its defense of her actions, and she immediately resigned her post. Of course, not all justices have mommy issues that may color their views of the administrative state. In fact, other members of the court's conservative supermajority have become more skeptical of Chevron over time. For example, earlier in his career on the bench, Justice Thomas seemed on board with Chevron and the prospect of agency regulation. This is probably unsurprising. One of Justice Thomas's first posts in government was serving as the chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. In recent years, however, Thomas has become increasingly critical of both Chevron and the prospect of agency regulation. Some have speculated that his growing skepticism of the administrative state and regulation coincides with his association with the Koch brothers and their network of conservative causes, which has made dismantling Chevron a core project. Who knows? But what I do know is this. 
These three cases do not capture the public's imagination and attention in the way that overturning Roe v. Wade or dismantling affirmative action did. But make no mistake about it, these cases all have a human dimension and the potential to fundamentally recast government as we know it. Stay informed. Melissa. Melissa. 